Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Big ideas, big transformations, social revolutions, new frameworks and transformations, they end up in the center, but they never begin in the center. The center is where they're validated. The center is where they come into the spotlight, and a lot more people know that they're there. Hello, and welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This episode was such a pleasure. I got to talk to Rebecca Solnit, who is one of my favorite writers and essayists. She's written a ton of books on just an unbelievably vast range of topics. Uh, she wrote Men Explain Things to Me, which the title essay, I think, gives our culture the idea of mansplaining. She wrote The Mother of All Questions. She wrote this beautiful book, A Paradise Built in Hell, about the communities that rise in the aftermath of disaster. She's written beautiful atlases of places like SF. She's written about walking and wanderlust and her field guide to getting lost. Uh, she's just a, a truly wide-ranging writer, intellectual historian, activist. And she's written the new memoir, Recollections of My Non-Existence, which is one of the more beautiful books I've had the occasion to read recently. And also tough. It's not it's not a, an easy narrative of growing up and succeeding. It's a narrative of fear, of menace, of trying to find yourself in a world that does not exactly want you to be there and does not exactly set itself up for you to succeed. There's a huge amount of wisdom in this conversation with her. And, and something that was striking about prepping for it is it was impossible to prep for because what she has done and thought about and the number of things I would find that she had said something perceptive on was so broad. So we talk about the memoir. We also go through a lot of her older work. I basically just looked for all these wonderful things she said and got an opportunity to ask her about them. And there are a lot I wish I could, could have put in here if we had more time that I didn't. But nevertheless, I think this is a great, great conversation. As always, you can email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com with guest suggestions, feedback, whatever it might be. And uh, I should mention as well that the Why We're Polarized book tour is continuing over the next couple of months with stops in Austin, Chicago. Greenville, South Carolina, Nashville, Tennessee. Um, you can check that out at whywerepolarized.com or buy the book if you haven't bought that already. I hope you have. But here is with great pleasure I present this wonderful conversation with Rebecca Solnit. Rebecca Solnit, welcome to the podcast. Lovely to be here, Ezra. Let me start with a great line you have from the poet Diane de Prima in the book. Uh, she writes, you cannot write a single line without a cosmology. What's a cosmology and why is that? I think she's arguing that everything comes from a point of view. Every point of view is political. There is no neutral place to stand. You can't pretend you're not engaged and involved and committed in some way in what you're doing. And postmodernism would have another version of that, but there's 
San Francisco hometown hero, Diane DePrima, getting into it, you know, 30 years earlier. What is your cosmology? There was an old woman at Occupy Wall Street who said, what I kind of hear Elizabeth Warren saying now, and the old woman said, we're fighting for a world in which everyone matters. I'm not sure fighting's the right verb, but it could also be the Buddhist compassion for all beings. It's, you know, lift all voices, make room for everyone, do no harm. I'm piling up sayings here, (laughs) you know, and protect the climate, for heaven's sakes. You know, and I see feminism as a subset of human rights and the bigger picture, and that is also about compassion and nonviolence and can extend beyond humans to the earth at large. I'd like to talk a bit about that. You mentioned in the book just offhandedly a few times that something you're writing or something you're doing or feeling is before feminism for you. You're having something that you didn't yet have the language um, as you look back to, to talk about it. When did you and how did you find feminism? There were so many ways it kind of came in the door and I met it, but I wasn't quite there yet. My mom, who could often be deeply anti-feminist, was an early subscriber to Ms. Magazine. So I was reading Ms. Magazine right when it started when I was a tween or an early teen. But I was still trained so much to take the men's side, and I still didn't have a big structural analysis of why women have to deal every day with the threat of male violence and how that changes the world for all of us. Really what made me a feminist was in my late teens and early 20s, being barraged by what we often call harassment, but that just sounds bothersome, what I would call menace on the streets and sometimes in other places, and just feeling like, where are my human rights? Where are my civil rights? This is not about, I need to learn how to, you know, dress better, learn martial arts, get a boyfriend, take a taxi, buy a gun, cut my hair off, dress like a man. And I was given so many instructions about how to treat as inevitable the fact that men wanted to harm me. And that really was what made me a feminist. And that's a lot of what this book is about, is saying, it is not my job to adapt to this. This is outrageous and unacceptable, and it affects all of us, and it needs to change. And then finding gradually that feminists were talking about it and becoming friends with some like Susan Griffin, who was talking about this in the mid-70s. And so then there's also waves, and a lot of my adult life took place during what feels like lulls in feminism. A lot of women were like, I'm not a feminist, and like, I don't want to upset the men. And then suddenly in 2012 or 13, we have this incredible eruption of women who are talking about violence against women, how it impacts us, are unabashedly feminist. And it felt like the conversation I'd been waiting for my whole life was finally here, and I was thrilled to be part of it. You write a lot in the book about the omnipresence of that sense of menace and what it does to you. You have this lovely line where you say that people often say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But you write that what tries to kill you takes a lot of your energy that might be better used elsewhere and makes you tired and anxious. When did you start getting that sense of tiredness, of anxiety, of that there was something in the air around you and that changed what you were able to do that shouldn't have been there? I mean, there isn't any point at which gender violence didn't affect me. My father was beating my mother before I was born, and I grew up in a very violent atmosphere. And so really what changed was naming it and delegitimizing it, saying this 
you know, I have the right to be unharmed, whether it's in a family or a relationship or on the street or in the workplace. And so that's really the change is delegitimizing something that was ambient. And something I should say that this book felt different than a lot of the memoirs we've seen about women and violence, and that a lot of them are centered on one spectacular and exceptional act of violence. And I think those are important books. I love what Roxane Gay said in Hunger. I love what Alice Sabold wrote about in Lucky. But I wanted to say that there's more than that. Those are stories about something exceptional happened to you and then you deal with it. And in some sense, I don't think that's what they're doing, but it can give the sense that this doesn't happen to everyone. When it does, it's exceptional. And it then it happens to you personally and you can overcome it or address it in some way that's personal. I wanted to say it's so ambient. It affects all of us. And there's no way you can leave it behind because it's the whole culture. It's structural violence. And there's no way you can get over it because it's not your job to adjust psychologically to a world in which a lot of men want to kill women and harm women and degrade women and silence women, and a lot of men do. And it impacts, I think, all women and in a different way impacts all men. And, you know, I'm speaking very binary ways, but we could talk about we're in the Bay Area where a non-binary kid was lit on fire for being non-binary while he was sleeping on a public bus in Oakland. You know that— And that was, we should say, very recently. Yeah, that was about five years ago now, but— But just in the modern but yeah, era. But yeah, but this stuff is happening every day. There is a story on a local station about how one story—recently a therapist's ex came in, strangled her, and threw her out a third-floor window to her death— and somebody framed that as like this scare this this was a frightening thing that scares us. And it's like every day is a frightening thing that scares us. It was the same in the same couple days, there was a story about an Australian woman whose ex lit her on fire in her car and burned her and her children to death. And a story about a woman in Mexico whose ex literally skinned her after stabbing her. And it's like these are gruesome stories. I kind of hate to put these in other people's minds. But I didn't go looking for them. They're just ambient in the news. And they're reminders that this could happen to you if you're a woman, if you have an angry ex, if you weren't polite to the guy who yelled at you on the sidewalk, if, you know, and to live in that world, I think it's ambient in some ways. And there's no place to go permanently for the rest of your life, you know, away from it. And uh, so we have to change it. This is a tricky question because it's not meant to put you on a pedestal other people don't occupy. But something I'm always interested in is what leads to people being able to maintain focus or keep themselves from numbing against things that become ambient and in the background for others, different kinds of violence against people or suffering they see around them or threat in, in the air. Something that I read in your memoir is a sense that Things that a lot of other people either get told or just how things are or get told to adjust to, you were sort of able to hold focus on as something that shouldn't exist, that shouldn't be there, that shouldn't be legitimized. Why do you think that was when so many of us normalize into often quite awful things that our culture tells us to accept? I think there's two parts to it. One is that I'm an exceedingly stubborn and contrary human being. And the other is that... I have lived a lot of my life immersed in history and stories about 
long-term transformation. I think it's very easy if you live in the present and not in a kind of deeper time to believe that who we are right now is who we've always been, and therefore it's who we're always going to be, which means that change is impossible. And a lot of mainstream politicians and news sources want to tell us that ordinary people don't have power and they're not going to change anything, and this stuff is just inherent and inevitable. If you read and witness, as I also have as an activist, seeing Native American rights, queer rights, women's rights, disabled rights, and stuff change radically over my lifetime, you see that actually everything is historically situated, everything is culturally constructed, and anything, as Ursula K. Le Guin said about capitalism, that human beings can create, human beings can change. In that beautiful passage where she said, once absolutist monarchy seemed inevitable, and then came the French Revolution, these things can change. And we do know there are cultures in parts of the world where violence against women is not so intense. And, uh, that, you know, that there have been matriarchies as well as patriarchies. There have been anarchic hunter-gatherer groups in which you can't do this stuff to people because you're going to live with these same 40 people for the rest of your life and they're going to hold you accountable. So I feel like context is everything. And being somebody who's lived my life in books has given me that context. I don't know what gave me that stubbornness, though. I want to go back to something you said about this not being a memoir about one extraordinary act, but instead about uh, an, an ambient experience. You have a line where you write that even if none of these terrible things happen to you, the possibility they might and the constant reminders have an impact. Can you talk about what that impact is? Yeah, I think we have a binary. And I was looking at statistics again this morning. One out of five American women has been raped, which doesn't quite, you know, mesh with some of the other statistics we have that make it seem higher. And you can say that in a very bald way where it's like either you were raped or you were not raped. And if you were not raped, it didn't happen to you. But my friend Heather Smith said to me recently, as a girl and a young woman, you spend your whole life getting instructions on how not to be murdered. And that means that even if physical violence hasn't happened to you, psychological violence has. You've been told people would like to harm you. It's on you to strategize how to not be impacted by that harm physically. And then as a woman, you spend your whole life, should I get on this elevator? Should I walk to the parking lot? Should I go there alone? Should I take the hike? Should I go, you know, can I go hiking alone? I had an experience 20 years ago where one of my brothers said, oh, I hate the cars, so I go running in Golden Gate Park and all the back trails. And I was like, I hate the scary guys, so I go running on the main roads with the cars. And just to see that we interpreted the landscape in a totally different way because of gender. And this is a park in which women have been raped and murdered because just because they were there. You know, and also there's a way they're like, oh, it hasn't happened to you. But that doesn't mean it's not going to happen to you. You know, when I was a young woman, I was constantly ta sort of targeted by sexual harassment. I'm in my 50s. It hasn't happened much over the last 25 or 30 years. But that doesn't mean it can't happen. And I read gruesome stories about things that happen to six-month-old babies and 90-year-old women. And, you know, they do also happen to men, non-binary people, etc. Nobody's off the hook from this happening. We live in a very violent culture. You know, and there are other kinds of violence we could talk about. But gender violence 
is, I think, ambient in women's lives. It happens to you even if it doesn't happen to you. You know, even if you weren't in an abusive relationship, the fact that women get beaten for challenging or disobeying or leaving men impacts how you navigate your life and and might just be unconscious and make you someone who's very anxious to placate and smooth over and appease men. And you'll never think about why you're doing that. Or it might make you a feminist who wants to see it all change. You've read a lot about cultural narratives, going back to Edgar Allan Poe talking about how the death of woman is the most poetic event of all. And something I was thinking about as you went through these in Greek myths and, and, and other places where violence against women or women's fear is in a way valorized or eroticized is that you'll sometimes hear to a conversation like this a pushback from you know the men's rights world, which is something like men are likelier to die violently than women on average. But that's something I think you write about with a lot of grace here is that men aren't brought up to imagine themselves as victims. They're brought up to imagine themselves as the ones inflicting violence, often heroically, but but nevertheless. Um, and sometimes that goes very wrong. But that's a very different way to see yourself in the world, to see yourself as the physical protagonist as opposed to in all the stories you've read and so on, you're the one who is physically acted upon. Those fun statistics I was glancing at, one out of five women, one out of 71 men will be raped so that, you know, women are dealing with a much higher likelihood of it. But it's also ambient. Violence against men is often shown as heroic, and we're supposed to identify with the Clint Eastwood, you know, or whoever character who's the victor, not the villain. But it's not eroticized in the same way. We don't have the equivalent of everyone from Alfred Hitchcock and Brian De Palma to Lars von Trier and David Lynch and God, who else should I think about? You know, I don't think we have a male rapper who's a survivor of intimate partner violence that was very public. We don't have, you know, it isn't the same. And But I also want to say, like, hey, dudes, if you think that violence impacts men, I think you're right. So you go do something about gun violence and bullying and gang violence and prison violence and wherever you think men are being impacted. Because part of it is we're not so separate. And I know men whose mothers were murdered by their fathers or their stepfathers. And that you know that this stuff reaches out and impacts all of us in ways. And one of the things that's really interesting in the culture right now is that the rhetoric around guns is that guns are things we use that protect us and make us stronger. Domestic violence homicides are actually going up because the prevalence of guns is going up appears to be the correlative, and that's mostly male partners killing female partners. But the highest incident of gun violence is male suicide. Men get guns because they think they're going to kill a bad man, and it turns out the bad man they're going to kill is themselves, which is so sad and weird and scary. And so, you know, so the men's rights people are so zero-sum game, like, hey, ladies, you can't have anything because then we'll have less. And it's like there's no scarcity of conversations to be had. There's no scarcity of empathy, at least at our end. Like, you go address the violence that impacts you, but we're addressing the violence that impacts us, and actually it benefits you too if you look a little harder and go a little deeper. 
You mentioned a minute ago the um, different movie directors who have eroticized violence against women. Uh, we happen to be talking on the day that Harvey Weinstein was found guilty on two counts. Uh, two out of five. Two yeah. out of five. What did you think about that? One of the things that was really dismaying going into it is how many people couldn't imagine he'd actually be found guilty because they're so convinced that the privilege in power and the male privilege, rich dude with lots of lawyers, privilege, white privilege, as opposed to Bill Cosby's privileges, overrides the system. So I think it's really great. He was found guilty on two out of the five charges. There are the two things that were more specific. The sort of serial predator charges were the ones they, that didn't stick. I think the fact that it was a white, I think there were six or seven white men on the jury voted to convict him might be a milestone. I think the fact that he has more charges awaiting him in L.A. and there may yet be more coming forward when, you know, is great. But I also think this is one person. It does feel like a watershed moment if somebody this powerful who had so many decades of getting away with it, you know, has now been convicted and will almost certainly go to jail. That sends a really important message. And for me, it's not so much that I want to see Harvey Weinstein go to jail, although of course I do. It's that it says to lots of guys who knew, who thought they had impunity, it's like your days of impunity when you can silence women through all these different means they've used to silence them are over. Women have voices, and of course we always had voices. We didn't have women, we didn't have people willing to hear them before. So that's changed. At the same time, in the agricultural fields of California, in fast food restaurants, in workplaces, in dorms, and college campuses, in homes, women are still being sexually assaulted and still not being heard. And so this does not fix the problem. This culture loves stories where we make one narrative carry the weight of the entire culture, whether it's O.J. Simpson or Anita Hill testifying against Clarence Thomas or something. And then we kind of make it the verdict, like if, you know, if the case fails, then the society failed if the case succeeds. And this case has kind of succeeded, but we as a society will not have succeeded. And we won't have succeeded not just when men are afraid to do this because they might actually be punished because women have voices, but when the desire to harm women and the entitlement to harm women, when the idea this makes you more of a man and you have the right to do this disappears, when some kind of common humanism and common ordinary nonviolence, I don't have the right to harm another human being, is the norm. That's the victory line, the finish line I'm looking for. You had um, this. Gr- I thought this great line in the book. You read it. You wrote about it. Comes as many of your great lines in the book does after something not as great. <laughs> you write about enduring years of sexual harassment from an older artist you were covering, and then you say that you had quote the sense that since young women are nobody, nothing you do with them is on the record. And I found that really clarifying in the sense that it seems to me that what Me Too has done, at least as you know, in the professions that people are interested enough in that they will be put on the record is create a space where women's voices now go on the record, where if somebody says, this was done to me, there is a much higher chance that somebody will listen and say, okay, you're you, like, you can say that and be believed. And, and not to say it's easy or there isn't reprisal, but that idea of voices moving on the record struck me as a much more apt metaphor for what this moment is seeing than almost anything else I've read. 
When I was 18, I was the bus boy, since we don't say bus girl in a restaurant. Maybe I was the bus girl. And there was this bleary-eyed old alcoholic cook who would grab my ass out of view of the front of the restaurant. And when I was that age, I felt, and I think I had good reason to feel, nothing I say would have made a difference. Nothing to him, nothing to our boss. That was before Anita Hill. It was when people were like, oh, it's no big deal. You're making a fuss. Get over it. Why didn't you just tell him to stop? All that stuff that pretended that we all have equal voices and it's the burdens on women to use theirs. And we know often it makes it worse. Often it does, it achieves nothing. I had a kind of pre-existing condition of voicelessness from having so many futile experiences or being punished so much for speaking up. And so I did the sneaky, underhanded thing you do when you're voiceless. I made sure the next time he grabbed me, I was holding a full tray of glasses fresh out of the dishwasher. And I screamed and dropped the whole tray of glasses. And they made this this sound I couldn't make. And the owner came over. He didn't give a damn about my bodily integrity and dignity, but he didn't want to lose 40 glasses. So I said he grabbed me. And the owner chewed out the chef. The chef knew that I'd trapped him. And he never touched me again. And that's the way you have to operate when you're nobody. But I wrote about that in an essay for Harper's a couple years ago. We always say nobody knows, and that means that everyone who knows was nobody. Everyone who was nobody knew about Harvey Weinstein. And what's fascinating about that, that case in particular is that so many of these women were really major public figures, women nominated for Oscars, women we'd seen in movies, etc., but they did not feel they could speak up or they, you know, and it was happening on what gets dismissed as like the whisper circuit, which is women, not because we're bitchy gossips, but because we don't want it to happen to someone else saying, watch out for that guy. Don't be alone in the room with him. Don't get in his car, you know, so that nobody knows thing. And what I think happened, and I want to do a little corrective with what you said about Me Too, me Too is not the beginning of anything. It's the culmination of something. And for me, nothing new emerged with Me Too except very specific names. We knew this was happening. The Bill Cosby case, which is actually very much this kind of thing about a celebrity happened earlier, Gian Gomeshi, various other celebrities, the Woody Allen case. We'd had lots of celebrity stuff to chew on. We had the statistics. We had a campus rape movement. We had women like Emma Sulkowitz, who carried a mattress as performance art on her college campus, like the one she was raped on, to protest to the fact that the system provided her no form of justice. What happened, I think, that we call Me Too, is that because of feminism, which means not just women in positions of power as judges, producers, editors, investigative reporters— Etc. Not just women, but men willing at last to treat women as equally credible, important, worth listening to, were suddenly the people deciding that, yeah, this person matters, this story is credible, this is something we're going to go on the record with, this is something we're going to pursue. And so that was the culmination of a lot of feminism that often looked like kind of really tedious bourgeois feminism. We need to have women judges. We need to have women in positions of power. We need to have 
But I don't think it was just women. I think it was also men who, because of the feminist discourse of the last several years, got that this is not trivial, got that this impacts women in a huge way. It's not just, oh, something sort of unpleasant happened, get over it. And also got that it's not the woman's fault. You know, it's not what you were wearing or what you were drinking or where you were. It's rapists who cause rape. And also got that rape is really epidemic and lying about rape is not, you know, because we had a situation only about five years from five years ago where so many people were bought into the narrative that women lie constantly about rape which and that rape never really happens. We saw that in how a lot of campus rape stories were treated and a lot of other stuff. And we still see it even in the Bernie Sanders, this is not a sexual assault case, but when Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren had two different stories, the default of so many people to a he said, she said, oh, she must be lying. If she's lying, she's malicious. She's vindictive. She's now we need to send her a hundred million snake emojis on Twitter. So we're changing some of the structural frameworks that made women inaudible and incredible and gave men the ability to override women's voices. And that's been a long-term project. And you can date it back to Mary Wollstonecraft in the 18th century, the beginning of the women's movement and the anti-slavery movement in the 1840s, second wave feminism from the 1960s, or this incredible wave of feminism we've had that starts, I think, in the winter of 2012, early 2013. But that's what laid the groundwork so this could happen. And men who'd never been held accountable suddenly could. And of course, Roger Ailes and Bill O'Reilly and other celebrity men had been held accountable before that. But something really did change in October of 2017. And thank God it did, whoever that God is in all her loveliness. I'm very hard on social media, which I think in many ways has been very bad for politics and for life. But but this is a way in which I think it has actually done and can do good, which is in everything you're saying, it does seem to me that one of the catalytic changes was that there were now these platforms where, in this case, women, but in other cases like Black Lives Matter, um, African-Americans and, and, and others, were able to take something that the gatekeepers to most traditional media outlets or most politicians weren't taking that seriously and didn't want to give that much attention to and just explode it into the center of the conversation so it couldn't be ignored. So now the question wasn't, why are you covering this, but why aren't you? And that seems to me to be at least, it doesn't always work, but one of the ways in which social media can actually or has actually been harnessed for a more just world. There are a lot of really good people on social media who in concert, you know, come together as the Arab Spring, as Black Lives Matter, as these feminist sort of Greek choruses amplifying and elaborating on a story that's made its way through the filtration systems of the media. But I think the people who run the major um, social media platforms are more or less evil, and that goes for the head of Twitter, that sure goes for... Mark Zuckerberg, and they don't give a damn about human rights. They don't give a damn about disinformation, misinformation, you know, white supremacist propaganda, rape and death threats circulated on their platforms. If it's profitable, they'll do the minimum of what they have to do to keep their respectability points with the people who should be limiting what they can do in the U.S., but don't really. But 
you know, and it's not even just feminists and Gamergate and doxing and things like that on Twitter. It's genocide with that Facebook's implicated in in Burma, Myanmar, and corrupted elections, including ours in 2016, and so much more. And, you know, I am on Facebook. I'm not on Twitter. And it's just so painful because I feel like the people I'm connected to, though, are really good, and the platform is really evil, and we don't really have a way out. My friend Siva Vedhanayathan, whose name I may be mangling worse than Weinstein, um, you know, says that walking away from it isn't going to fix it. And I don't know what will. Um, You know, I hate to already be harping on Elizabeth Warren, but she does have a plan to break up these monopolies, which I find kind of exciting and hopeful, but uh, it is part of the deep weirdness of our time. I'm sure that, you know, Zuckerberg or Dorsey, they would be, um, they don't think of themselves as evil. So what do you think it is that they have justified? What do you think has put them in the position or what do you think they have done or chosen to do that has put them in a place where their actions are, in your view, evil? They have knowingly allowed misinformation that corrupts political life in many countries, not just ours, to circulate without any form of regulation when that regulation would be easy. I'm looking particularly at the 2016 election in this country. And Twitter is now, I think, rejecting all political advertising, but not other kinds of stuff. Facebook is allowing outright lies as paid political ads to change the discourse of the U.S., you know, presidential race, as it did before. And then you can also look at the Gamergate, which took place largely on Twitter, other hate campaigns that continue to unfold. And something I've seen on Twitter a lot, where I lurk but don't tweet, is that if a kind of big, high visibility, usually straight white man is threatened in some way, the people who, or even some people say something impolite about him, They'll get shut down by Twitter. But, you know, you'll have trans women, black women, feminists get rape threats, death threats, people swarming them, etc. And nothing really happens. I had a personal experience on Facebook. They had Jewish blood ritual sacrifice page, which was reiterating a medieval slander that we kill little Christian babies and do things with their blood. And it's like this 900 or so year old piece of crazy lurid propaganda that is really harmful because anti-Semitism is a growing force again worldwide. And it's led to things like the Pittsburgh Synagogue Massacre. I kept reporting it as hate speech and they kept telling me it wasn't hate speech and other people kept reporting it. And it's partly because they're such cheapskates, Facebook is, that they've got poor, traumatized, underpaid people in Philippines who may not have the cultural equipment or the time to do research, et cetera, and sift through what's really going on here. And what it boils down to is they don't care. Because if they did, they could have done something about Gamergate. They could have done something about a lot of hate campaigns and misinformation, disinformation, propaganda campaigns. They could have known a lot more about Russian intervention in the election, um, troll farms and bots and how they're being weaponized to smear people and change the nature of political life. 
And, you know, and they often use a completely bullshit rhetoric of free speech. But if I'm using my power to prevent you from being able to talk at all, that's not free speech. And we've had a much more sophisticated notion of what free speech is, and rather than everyone gets to say everything, which has been the just, you know, the kind of free market, laissez-faire, libertarian idea, everyone is free, we can all sort it out personally, that never addresses who has more power, who has more resources, who gets amplified and who gets silenced and terrorized by those structures. Yeah, I have one of my pet frustrations with that whole conversation is that I'm a, in general, I think, a supporter of free speech, but algorithmically amplified speech is a very different thing. And so when what you've done is build an algorithm that incentivizes for certain kinds of speech and tactics and ideas and particularly ones that create very strong negative emotional reactions or controversies around them, what you are protecting is not free speech. What you're protecting is a business model, like a proprietary algorithm. And I hate that free speech, which in its own way can be a very beautiful idea, has been weaponized into this discourse where if you say, you know, a for-profit platform shouldn't be permitting this kind of speech to be the dominant form of speech in a way that it is making money off of, you're somehow against free speech. I think it's a real, it's a real cheapening of an important idea. One thing I think about sometimes is if search engines and social media platforms had emerged in a somewhat less capitalistic framework, if they'd been seen as commons that had to be run for the public good and were not funded by advertising, which has given Google and Facebook and the rest of them an incentive both to violate our privacy in every obscene way possible to sell us as products to advertisers and to amplify whatever sells and gets clicks. We might have had a completely different world. You know, that when advertising drives all this, you have models where you want to addict people, keep their attention going. For example, YouTube, which belongs to Google, as I'm sure you know, but it might be worth saying, has found that extremist content isn't necessarily what people like, but it was keeps them watching. So they allegedly have algorithms that keep people that send people more and more extremist stuff and get them caught up in conspiracy theories, whether it's Pizzagate or Flat Earth or any number of other crazy things. And that really harm the political discourse and put people in danger. And we saw with Pizzagate, you know, ultimately some guy walked in there with a gun looking for the basement child molestation ring in a pizzeria without a basement, you know, which is sort of laughable, except that people could have gotten shot. And we have so much stuff like this. They've It's profitable. If these things were run as nonprofits, we might also not see kind of rage and outrage as the easy emotions to milk also running all this. And, you know, I think right-wing talk radio modeled that, and um, Rush Limbaugh and his disgusting Medal of Freedom kind of pioneered all that in the 90s. And the cheapest, easiest emotions are anger and indignation. And the left and the right and the center all weaponize them to get people all riled up and caught up. And it's made us kind of stupid, angry people. And I think shifted us towards those 
guess who did something bad we should all hate on? Yes. Rather than let's go deeper, let's understand this. Here's this beautiful thing that's happening. Here's how the world gets changed. Here's where our power lies. Here's these heroes who model for us who we could be. You have this lovely discussion of the value of the margins, which you talk about after talking to a friend who moved out of New York and complained that they were no longer the center of things. Can you talk a bit about the value of the margins and how it informs or infuses your work? Yeah, I was actually a grad student when I was at my alma mater, the Graduate School of Journalism at UC Berkeley. And she had come from, uh, I think, Mumbai and then New York, and she'd really thought of being at the center. And I'm sure you know well how much New York really preaches the gospel of this is the center of the universe and the only place that matters and where you really want to be. And I'm a Californian. I'm a San Franciscan. I've grown up my whole life being told, you're just some, you know, you're literally fringe characters. That's a term that gets used a lot. You're marginal, you're on the edge, you're the far edge of Western civilization. This isn't where it's happening. Looking at the historical narratives that became my book, Hope in the Dark, is that big ideas, big transformations, social revolutions, new frameworks and transformations, they end up in the center, but they never begin in the center. The center is where they're validated. The center is where they come into the spotlight and a lot more people know that they're there, including really powerful people. But all these things start on the margins. There's a line ascribed to Gandhi that isn't really Gandhi, but is really useful here. First they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. And the really important ideas about the economy could be completely different. We could have health care for everybody. At um, women are human beings. That's a pretty radical idea that emerged a couple centuries ago. We're still working on every every consenting adult should have equal access to the rights and benefits and joys of marriage. Gender and sex are different things. Sometimes these begin as kind of academic conversations. Sometimes they begin in impacted communities, and Black Lives Matter brought a reality Black people knew really well and made white people and people in power as government and uh, law enforcement and judiciary look at the fact that the police kill Black people a lot, and they kill them and make up excuses for why they did it, and the excuses are often really transparent. And here's lots of video footage of people being shot in the back while the cops claim they were being threatened because they were rushing at them. So that, you know, and maybe my biggest formative intellectual and in a way spiritual influence was watching Native Americans and scholars of Native history change the narrative in around the quincentennial of Columbus's arrival in the Americas around 1992 when I was a young person trying to understand what it meant to be out here in the West, what the history of this place was, which was very much about the Indian Wars. And I think a lot of people who might be old enough to remember that transformation don't have historical imaginations. They don't remember how differently we talked about Native people as people who were never going to be part of the conversation, as people who had conveniently disappeared But also environmentalists, too, talked about North America as virgin wilderness where humans didn't belong, as Columbus and other white men like John Muir as discoverers of uninhabited places, etc. 
all that changed. And I saw those ideas move from people we don't think of as having a lot of power, Native American activists, scholars and historians, ethnobotanists saying, actually, we've got it all wrong about the role of fire in the ecology of the West, because Native people set fires and fire is an important natural process. So that's really the ecology. And also with really big stories often that end up in the mainstream news, they start out as something that's a little bit more, that's reported in alternative media or even on social media, et cetera. And there's kind of a food chain as it goes up to the big networks and things. So yeah, so the margins are the great generative space. And I also think often, and I wrote a book called Hope in the Dark, which is literally, you know, not hope in dark times as it was often misinterpreted. It's about the mysteriousness and the numinousness and liminality of darkness. I think of the center stage, the New York's, the mainstream media also as kind of the spotlight. And if you've been on stage, if you've been in the spotlight, you know, you can't see a damn thing out there. But those people backstage, offstage, outside the theater a thousand miles away might be someplace much more dimmer where they can see so much more. They're also the nobody knows. They're also the nobody who knows and nobody knows. You know, because you get crazy stuff like well-known politicians saying, you know, he had no idea that people were spending huge amounts of time in prison just because they couldn't make bail. And a lot of times we're told in this culture, like, nobody knew that was happening. And it's like, well, hell, the people it was happening to knew it was happening. And the people who loved them knew it was happening. But those people were nobody. So they weren't being heard from about how many poor people are spending time in prison because they don't have the money to, to get out. Um, even if they're going to be found innocent, even if the charges are going to be dropped. So yeah, so the margins are where it's interesting, where it's happening, where I want to be. And I feel really lucky that sometimes I've been, you know, like a, a mule carrying loads from the margins to someplace more central. I've been blessed to have some audibility in this world the last 20 years of my life and to try and stay in touch with people on the margins. One of the really important things that happened to me and that I've done probably for my whole life is I went to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, and because of what I knew from looking at the history of the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco, and because of who I was connected to, anarchist medics who were taking care of people who stayed in New Orleans after the storm, Black people at the Common Ground uh, Clinic and activism, different kinds of locals. And because I knew what the patterns were, what goes wrong in disasters, I understood that there had been a huge amount of racist violence that no one was talking about, that the mainstream media told a story that wasn't true. Oh, Black people are savage and out of control in New Orleans, and they're they're harming each other in New Orleans, and we have to prevent them from getting out and send in the military. And the Democratic governor of New Orleans said, I have troops with M-16s fresh, fresh from Iraq, and they're, you know, that are locked and loaded, and they're ready. I'm sending them to the city. And it's like, no, you've got grandmas dying on freeway overpasses and Moms who stayed behind with their small children because they couldn't evacuate, and the police are shooting people in the back, and white vigilantes are shooting people. 
And that was a story. I happened to be a person who was close enough to the margins to hear that story and who was white enough and had enough credibility to bring it back to the mainstream and get, as it turned out, A.C. Thompson with the backing of ProPublica and The Nation magazine and I think eventually 60 Minutes to investigate and change the story. And so that's the, the limelight story was so racist and so destructive and also making the real story of what happened in Katrina that all these nobodies knew disappear, which was also what usually happens in disasters that it's the elites who panic, who impose violence, and the ordinary people who are actually pretty altruistic and amazing and take care of each other. So we always have to listen to the margins. We always have to figure out who's supposed to be nobody and try and know what they know to know what's going on. I, w- I want to put a pin in because I want to come back to the question because you wrote a beautiful book about this, about the way in which people come together after disasters and, and what that might tell us. But you wrote a great book about San Francisco. This memoir is very much about San Francisco. And one thing about San Francisco, as you mentioned a minute ago, is that it has culturally and traditionally been understood as a place of the fringe. Um, it yeah. is the center of queer culture in the United States. It is, you know, psychedelics and Eastern spirituality. And I mean, that was its reputation when I was growing up in, in Southern California, too. And over the past 15 years, let's call it, uh, it has become the mainstream. I mean, we talk about these platforms. They're located here, right? A lot of these decisions yeah. that are shaping everything else are coming out of here. What do you think has changed or been lost or been different about this strange movement of the Bay Area from the place it is the center of the margins, maybe, in America, to a place that is has become, in a way, dominant in its wealth and power and control of like the mainstream? I think it's a tragedy, both because it's destroying the Bay Area as a laboratory of margins where people are inventing new ways to think about sexuality and bodies and spirituality and health and nature and ecological and environmental possibilities and organizing and activism and poetry and painting and everything else under the sun. We have been a great experimental generative place, I think partly because we're further from Europe and some of the kind of limelight and power centers of the East Coast as well, because also I think we have strong indigenous presences. We face Asia, have huge Asian presence as both demographics and I think as cultural and spiritual forces here. We And, you know, we share a border with Mexico and um, Latin America as you know, California has always really been part of Latin America, even after the Yankees took it from Mexico. So, but I also feel like, for me, you know, it's such a tragedy. And for me, it's a heartbreak. And I felt really proud to be from the city of this, where the Sierra Club, the kind of the first great environmental organization was founded, where Harvey Milk lived and died and was the first great out gay politician in the U.S., etc., to a place where not just Facebook and Google and Twitter that we've talked about, but Airbnb, which is destroying communities from Barcelona to small towns and rural places across the world to 
Uber and Lyft, which are doing so many kinds of harm, and military contractors and other things. But it is in our DNA. And I wrote another book. You, It was not your homework assignment to read everything I read, because it's a pile. But I did write a book about Edward Moybridge, who, with the patronage of Leland Stanford, laid the groundwork for what became motion pictures. And I saw what those two men were doing in the 1870s and 1880s as a prehistory of what already made California a global center when I published that book in 2003, which was Hollywood and Silicon Valley. You know, the railroad barons, Leland Stanford included, who built the transcontinental railroad, were about a violent technology changing the shape of the world. And the railroad completed the circuit that made it possible to go around the world in 80 days and kind of conquered the space of the world and made it possible to have this mechanical speeded up existence, but also to put those railroads across the plains. The Indian Wars were fought and Sitting Bull and some of the other great plains warriors were not just fighting the U.S. Army, but fighting the U.S. Army when the Army was fighting for technological development. And you can see you know, those histories. And then Leland Stanford takes this ill-gotten gain as a robber baron, overcharging the U.S. for his services, and founds a university, which in many ways is a great university, but has this weird and different model about how business and engineering and scientific research will work together. And that begets, you know, Hewlett-Packard in the 1940s, and semiconductors and microchips and all this stuff so that, you know, it's kind of been building here. And we are a city that had Chevron and Bechtel and all kinds of other corporations doing not very nice things here all along with, you know, Wells Fargo and Bank of America and stuff. So I don't want to tell a story where we're all wearing flowers in our hair and singing songs of peace and love that, you know, the gold rush was an extraordinary eruption of genocidal violence against Native people and violence against the land. And, uh, you know, and that's kind of what made California what it is. So there are roots, but it has supernovaed. And I feel like we're losing something tremendously valuable and significant as we cease to be a margin because we are a global power center. And when I look at people using Apple devices in Iceland, or see genocide being perpetrated through Facebook in Burma. I see just how global we are, and it's so painful that it's happening here, and um, you know that it's happening in this place. It's been home for me I, nearly I, all my life. I very much take your point that it, it's a deep, not just an oversimplification. It's actively wrong to suggest that industry just found its way to San Francisco yeah. in the in the year of two thousand. But one thing that does seem really different in a way that is going to change the stories this place can have in the future is housing. Your memoir, it begins with an act of housing. It begins with you being able to get a very cheap room of your own um, when you're young in uh, what na what neighborhood was it? I was the Western Edition, still a proud, strong black neighborhood when I moved in in 1981. And that story would be so much harder today. It's something I think about all the time. I always say I heard the door slamming shut behind me as I ran. My parents cut me off financially when I was 17, so although I grew up middle class, I was a poor kid. 
anxious to get an education, partly because I was just so excited about books and ideas, and partly because I'm a really lousy waitress and salesperson, and I needed to find some better way to make a living. And I am so aware that it's not because I was awesome and kids nowadays aren't, but because of specific forces, the New Deal, the Great Society, the social programs that not just for me, but for all of us, gave us a much more equal society, much more, you know, progressive taxation on corporations and wealthy people, much better social services, much lower college tuition and housing costs and healthcare costs. And I went to look at that apartment I would spend the next 25 years in the week after Ronald Reagan's inauguration and the Jarvis Gann Act that Prop 13 had passed in California a few years before. But that tax revolt is part of a privatization that I think was spiritual and psychological as well as economic that happened worldwide that said, I am not my brother's keeper. I don't care if you starve to death in the gutter. I'm already comfortable, but I want a little bit more. I don't want to pay for your kid to go to school or to have an, a society in which everyone has a fair chance. And it's, you know, we're talking about reinstating a lot of that in the Democratic primary right now. But I saw all that dismantled. And because I was born in 1961 and not a 1981 or 2001, I was benefiting from those things. But like I said, I saw and heard, heard the door slamming shut behind me. And I knew that people who were younger than me we're going to have it harder. It wouldn't be impossible to do what I did, but it's not possible to do it the way I did it, where I did it in San Francisco, one of the most expensive cities in the world. And that's kind of heartbreaking because access to major libraries and universities was part of what formed me. And another little plug I want to throw in as part of this analysis is in the conversation about free college we've been having that I think is so great, it's often talked about as though it's pie in the sky, you know, kind of far-fetched. Maybe they do it in socialist countries, blah, blah, blah. But the University of California, the biggest, greatest university system in the world, arguably, you know, was free for most Definitely. of it. <laughs> I say as a UC graduate. Which UC? UCLA? I went to Santa Arvind? Cruz. I went to Santa okay. Cruz for two years and then UCLA for one. Well, people should know that your mascot is a banana slug. They do. I, I have been a, a proud defender of UC Santa Cruz against Hassan Minaj's slurs of it, against it on this very podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I love, I mean, Santa Cruz. I was at LA for one year and then I, I moved to DC, but Santa Cruz is like my, it's the place like I feel very rooted in and is one of my actual favorite places on earth. The idea that you would build a public university for students to go study and think in a redwood grove overlooking the ocean. I mean, it just speaks to such, an, such a reverence for what a public good can be that yeah. just strikes me as, it, it strikes me as wild now looking back on it. At the same time, I've never verified this, but I was told they built that campus in the 60s to get all the young radicals away from the city centers where they could really mess oh, really? stuff up the and put them someplace where they wouldn't have much impact. I heard a version of that, that the way Santa Cruz is built, which is very decentralized, was to not have the kind of central locations in it that Berkeley does. So you couldn't have radical marches and massing and occupations 
that had the sort of ease of geospatial organizing that they had then. So I don't know if it's true, but it certainly seems true if you ever try to navigate UC Santa Cruz, which is not um, the easiest place to navigate. And you could say that much more broadly about suburbanization. There's a beautiful history I've spent a lot of time with of how revolutions happen in cities like Paris that don't happen in sprawl. And, uh, you know, and we experience ourselves as citizens coexisting with people unlike us in a way that I think is a really important experience of democracy when we live in diverse cities. And I mean economically diverse as well as ethnically diverse. We're losing that as cities become dense urban suburbs full of affluent white people who are pushing poorer and less white people out to the decaying suburban infrastructure. And that's part of what this book, this memoir of mine, Recollection of My Non-Existence, is about, too. I just wanted to walk down the street. But because I was a young woman, walking down the street was so fraught with danger and misery and harassment. And part of why I wanted to walk down the street was introspection and thinking. I'm restless. I wanted to move. I also wanted to get places for free because I was poor. And that's how you get around in a dense city like San Francisco. But I think also that experience... Um, over my lifetime has been a deep experience of coexistence with other people that is really rich and valuable and part of democracy. I wrote about it in my book on walking, Wanderlust. I wrote about it in my atlases and a bunch of places. And I feel like we're losing that with kids who are so habituated to calling an Uber or Lyft you know, and don't know that their body is adequate to go a mile or five miles, or if you want to be like John Muir, a thousand miles, and or like my friend Garnett Cadigan, you know, 50 miles in a an urban stroll. And, um, you know, and that coexistence, I think, has been just so rich and beautiful and important, and that coexistence among diversity, suburbia, was a war against it, the sense we don't, you know, as were various kinds of segregation, including economic segregation. One of the things I write about in this book is as a straight kid living in a city full of gay men in particular had a huge impact on me that was so joyous and liberating about who I could be, about who men could be, about how to look at the world around you how to watch movies in the Castro Theater as I sat there in the dark with people who snickered at all the campy stuff and the ridiculous heteronormativeness of things. And so we learn from each other. And I wanted to be, and want to be in that diversity, but it is also a space in which some of us aren't safe because we're trans, because we're non-white, because we're not male. And that's the human rights, civil rights problem that we need to and in some ways we are addressing, but we've begun, which is great, but I have no idea where the finish line is, but I think it's deep in the future. I just hope we keep going. Can you talk a bit about what it meant to you and and, and change for you being inside and deeply woven into a community that was queer in San Francisco in that age? I mean, you, you talk about this during the height of the AIDS epidemic, which... My so my uncle was uh, my I guess my grand uncle um, was gay and died of AIDS in 1994, and we were very close to him. And it was he was in New York, but it was only much much later that I understood that his death was part of a much bigger story. That he died at the height of an epidemic. That if it had been a couple years later, he might not have died at all. And as I began reading into that to try to put that 
into some context, just the size of it here at that time is so unimaginable. So you you talk about that period of your life both as something that taught you a lot, that gave you hope and gave you new spaces and gave you some freedom. And also, I can't imagine what it was like to live through a plague at that level. So I was hoping you could just discuss it a bit. I and I be I had a like the kindest person to me in my adolescence from 13 on was a gay man who was about five years older than me. He took me to my first drag queen bar when I was probably 14 or so. And it says a lot about the 70s that a 14-year-old could hang out in a bar. I had my first drink in a bar when I was 15 and um, started going to nightclubs for 21 and over around that time and never stopped. So I was in, you know, I was going to the stud, a wonderful leather bar that also was part of the punk scene, you know, in my teens and stuff. And these were really kind men. And first of all, they weren't going to rape me, which so like there was like you could be off your guard. They're just so smart and eloquent and incisive and funny. And they're really instructive in how to look at things. And I don't want to say like all gay men are like that. I don't want to engage in positive stereotyping. I just was lucky to know a ton of men who are like that. And I never want to take away the right of everyone and anyone to be humorless and mean and et cetera. <laughs> you know, no matter who you yeah, are, that absolutely. you have that option. But these men were just so wonderful. They really liked me and liked women often without it being now you've now I said something nice to you and you've got to do this for me and stuff. They were and they were also victims of patriarchy, which is not just about men against women, but men punishing men for not choosing to obey the rules of masculinity, the heteronormative rules. And they were facing intense violence too. But what they were saying to me in so many different ways, and some of them are directly, is it is worth it to break the rules. It is worth it to have a life that is outside the rules and outside the categories. And then something else that is still really important to me and so much a part of my life, which is these were men who are not allowed to get married to the people they might want to marry and who mostly were not going to have children and families, although, you know, it was less visible to me then how many lesbians already had kids and um, all that. But these were people modeling what we often talk about as alternative family, that you can be so committed and devoted and loving to people who are a permanent part of your life, who are not the people you're having sex with and not the people you gave birth to or who gave birth to you and the ancillary uncles and cousins and nieces and et cetera, that those are your chosen family, something they talk about a lot in queer culture. And that deep valuation of friendship and as a kind of rhizomatic networked sense of connections that matter, rather than the sort of very limited family tree that heterosexuality often preaches, you must get a man, you must have children because this is what love is. I think was so liberating for me. I'm as a woman, I've often been told you must have children because you must love, and if you don't love children, you are loveless, which is kind of gross on top of all the rest of it. But it ignores there's so much other work love has to do in the world. There's so much else to love and be loved by. And I think kids are great, and I am the most doting aunt and great aunt and godmother around. But you know. 
these men were liberators, even if you weren't a man, even if you weren't queer. And I am so grateful to them. And I always thought someday I was going to write an essay just called Thank You, Gay Men. And it's not titled that, but a section of this book is that Thank You, Gay Men. So there's a bunch of specific people, Patrick and Gent and Rex and Tim and his husband, Tim, and all the rest, and Eric Young and out there campaigning for Warren. But thank you, gay men. Another section on something that was very formative for you that I thought was super interesting because I'm trying to get better at this myself, which is the work you did. You worked at a museum and you did works on contemporary artists. And you have this great line where you say you began to appreciate contemporary art and visual art as a philosophical inquiry by another means. And I wanted to ask you to talk a bit about the ways in which art history and being immersed in art shaped your journalism as it went on. Yeah, well, I kind of shaped my journalism by making it something other than journalism. And as a young writer, I was kind of unthinkingly accepting of the categories in which writing was divided up. And I should add that I knew by my late teens I wanted essentially to be an essayist, which is more or less what I think I am, although that gets called creative nonfiction more than it gets called essay writing. But I went to journalism school because creative nonfiction was not yet a thing, and writing programs, MFA programs, basically taught fiction and poetry and maybe a little drama. And I'm so grateful I went to journalism school at Berkeley. I learned lots of things about ethics and resourcefulness and principles and um, how to put together a lead line and a gripping first paragraph and all that kind of stuff. But I started writing out of grad school in three different ways. I was working in a little art magazine, writing art criticism, where you're kind of assuming a voice of God. This is my opinion, but just take my word for it. And then I was writing real straight journalism where there's not even a first person. You're just saying, this is what happened. Here's the facts. And then I was writing these very personal, subjective, lyrical essays, and they felt like three different things. And really, my big breakthrough was going to the Nevada test site where the U.S. had set off more than a 1,000 nuclear bombs as a protester and realizing all three of those voices belonged together, that I needed the lyricism, the critical analysis that could go much further than being art criticism. The same analysis you take to a painting or an installation you can take to, what does a nuclear bomb mean? How is it socially constructed? What are the assumptions? What are the, what's the visuality? What's in still invisible? You can take that to a national park, as I did in my second book, looking at the politics of representation that made Native people invisible in Yosemite. You can take that anywhere. So I brought those three things together to form the style in which I write. And so, you know, I was surrounded by artists, and some of them were close friends, some of them were collaborators, and they asked, the biggest, deepest questions, because art is a form of philosophical investigation. What do these materials mean? What does it mean to make? Walter Benjamin has a beautiful line, ask not what the work of art says about the means of production, but what is its place in the means of production? Artists would ask questions like that in ways writing can't, because you're just going to, you know, there's going to be publishers and printers, and it's going to result in a book on paper that's going to have distributors that put it in bookstores that people buy in retail. And um, whereas art can be public art or, you know, social interventions or performance or 
all kinds of things. The materials have meanings. They taught me to look really carefully at like, what does honey mean? What does wood mean? What does blood mean? What does hair mean? How can you look at these substances all around us that have inherent meaning beyond representation? What do our gestures mean? What is the act of making? What sort of shamanic ritual can an act of making be? Or what kind of labor is it? And what sort of recompense can it be? So artists were asking these huge, huge questions, and they really taught me to ask bigger, deeper questions than I think I would have learned anywhere else. And that also shaped the writing. And again, like being involved in Native American land rights struggles as I was in the 90s, like being on the edge of the queer community and having queer friends, being around artists and in the art world was such a huge part of what formed me and something that I feel so lucky for. Jenny O'Dell is this wonderful visual artist, and she wrote this great book, How to Do Nothing. And and she has this line that um, artists are orchestrators of attention. Yeah. And it's a nice way to think about both art and, in a different way, writing. And I think a good way for writers to feel a bit of responsibility, that if you're an orchestrator of attention, what you're shining attention on, and also what you're not shining it on. You have a line elsewhere in your book where you talk about how for every chapter written, there are all these chapters that are unwritten, and mm-hmm. which those are really important. That I think taking the responsibility of being an orchestrator of attention seriously is something that we don't discuss enough in be it journalism school or just within the the journalism profession, but but in writing more generally. In a way you could paraphrase that, that's part of this conversation is how do you bring the limelight to the margins? Mm-hmm. But that is one of the great things artists do is they're like, here's the dominant narrative, here's the conventional framework what's left out what other ways are there to tell the same you know the story of the same phenomenon the same event the same population or who's being left out of this that we can bring in and so they become these kind of import export smuggler people bringing things in and often some you know doing this symbolic work to bring into a very rarefied privileged place like a museum you know, these outside, these stories from outside, and it's part of what something artists of color in particular have been doing forever, but now that we have artists of color in museums. But yeah, but I think shifting where the attention goes is such an important part of the job. There is a way where people do end up all looking at the same thing and saying, oh, but so-and-so told that story better, Rather than, is there a completely different story? How does it look from the point of view of the different person? What we're calling Me Too is, um, hey, let's listen to people we never bothered to listen to before. And oh my God, when we do, we see there's an epidemic of violence against women, and it's happening to the most famous women we know, and it's happening at the highest echelons, and it's impacting us in ways we've never been willing to acknowledge. And it's actually what I think has made my lifetime an unfolding revolution. You know, I'm the same age as Jane Jacobs' The Life and Death of Great American Cities, a book about urbanism, a year younger than Betty Friedan's foundational, the feminine mystique about women's marginalization, Uh, two years older than Silent Spring, Rachel Carson's extraordinary book that really gave language to the environmental crisis and visibility to what was going on in the margins, which are the pesticides was killing the whole ecosystem. And corporations and the scientists they paid off were 
defending it, but the real science pointed to how dangerous it was for everything. And so my whole life has been seeing this amazing prospect of people swimming into view or fighting to come into view. And, you know, like gay rights really predates, you know, the 60s and is a very California thing with the Mattachine Society and the Daughters of Belitis in San Francisco and L.A. starting to advocate for treating non-straight people as something other than mentally ill and criminal. And, you know, and this process keeps going on. And in this moment, it's so easy to say, like, we are now so fully woke and awesome and have it all right, and we can put down anyone who isn't as woke as us, whether it's the person who didn't get the memo from the cutting-edge analysis last week or the people who were alive 50 or 100 years ago. But I always try and hold space for the things we don't see yet that maybe we're going to see in a year or 10 years or 50 years because we we are not we will never be fully woke. We have our blind spots. And something I talk about in this book is things that are so unknown that we don't know they're there. And this is what the process of waking up is is somebody starts to talk about something and often we don't even have words for it. Feminism has done so much work just creating the words to describe what the experiences are of being mansplained to, of why intersectionality matters, of what rape culture is. And workplace sexual harassment was a term invented by feminists in the 70s. We didn't have a name for it. And before we could name it, we couldn't take it seriously. And there's so much language that's come forward to help us see things until you, you know, often until you name something, you can't really describe it. Until you describe it, you can't do something about it. So we have this amazing process, this great collective process going on. We see it happening around climate and the environment and around disability rights, around trans rights, etc., of defining, naming, describing, defending, opening up space for and it's always this great collective project with many people on social media, some people with bigger platforms, researchers giving new evidence and buttressing those experiences with statistics and data. And it's this great experimental age we're in, which is terrifying if you look at the resurgence of authoritarianism and right-wing stuff around the world and the galloping pace of climate catastrophe, but exhilarating as these transformations so profound. I feel a few people have even recognized how huge they are, how different a people we are than who we were 50 or 60 years ago as these things go on. And I think all that is wound up together, right? That yeah. these transformations have been so profound that I think part of what we're seeing in the rise of right-wing authoritarianism and some of the um, the real revanchist backlash movements that I don't want to call them a price of progress. I think that's putting it much too simplistically. But I think that there is a way in which you have to, that we we often see these things as competing stories when they're one story, that they are, they there is some amount of, I remember as a Jewish person watching the Charlottesville uh, alt-right march and seeing these white supremacists in their khakis and their button-down shirts 
yelling, Jews will not replace us, and thinking, as scary as that scene is, the fact that you feel Jews are replacing you, even though we're not, there's some part of me that thinks that the space of weakness you feel yourself to be shouting from, there's something a little bit encouraging about it. There is, yeah. And just to frame it as backlash, that's how I feel on my good days, is that they're so upset and angry and freaked out that women and people of color and non-Christian people are going to, you know, non-cisgendered people are going to have some space and some voice and some power. And I think it's their own imagination that it is a zero-sum game. It's some sort of Hobbesian war of each against each that there isn't enough to go around. And so many American stories, and this goes back to Reaganomics and tax cuts, are that there's not enough for everybody. One of the big changes I want to see is tell a story of abundance. It's like everyone can have everything. We are the richest society that has ever existed. Everyone in the U.S. could have a home and an education and healthcare and really nice food. And that would mean rich people have to give more But hey, Elizabeth Warren's 2% wealth tax is not 100% wealth tax. Can you actually tell the difference between 2% and 100%? Because the way you're panicking, it doesn't seem like it. Hey, men, women having 50% of stuff because they're 50% of the population isn't 100%. But I guess since you're used to thinking you should have 100%, it feels like 50% is the same as nothing. So you have these people who, you know— as your kindergarten teacher would say, aren't good at sharing. And I do feel like demographically, it might not matter. We're going to be a non-white majority country in 2045. The rising generations, part of why they're so awesome and progressive on so many issues is because they're, you know, people under 18 are a non-white majority already. They're, they're the future America. The young are also, you know, young white people are much more used to, for the most part, living in a much more diverse society. And they are young white supremacists. But it is backlash. But I also think it's very astroturf and it's inculcated to divide and conquer by elites who benefit from white rage that also doesn't just support white power, but supports corporate power and economic inequality and uh, keeps the few in power and the many out. And it's a system that valorizes many kinds of hierarchies and serves an economic hierarchy among them. I want to talk about climate for a couple minutes and go back to paradise and hell as well. Thank you. I'm working on a piece about how the mediating variable in climate is what happens to the way we treat each other. So as climate stress increases around the world, as climate catastrophes increase, does that lead to us turning on each other? There's this book, um, American Civil War, which is a piece of kind of future speculative fiction about an American Civil War. But it has this line in it that when it's setting up its story, it says, this was after the planet turned on us and we turned on each other. And I can't get that line out of my head. And so I've been looking at this research about, you know, when societies are under climate pressure, you know, do civil wars increase? What happens to migrants? Do we become, you know, it's one world if we become kinder as we see what the climate is doing to all of us. And another world if we become, um, if we build walls and launch wars over resource competition. And 
what I've been finding has been depressing. But when I think about the case for hope, it's some of the stuff that you document in Paradise and Hell about how sometimes it's the moments of most extreme crisis that can bring out the best in us. So I'm curious how you think about that that world that, you know, is a world of more natural disaster, maybe a world that brings out some of our best instincts, or do you think it is one that's going to bring out our selfishness and our, our fear and our narrowness? And to quote Tonto talking to the Lone Ranger, what do you mean we would be the question. <laughs> sure. And I wrote a book about disaster partly because what I found was so counterintuitive and counter to the dominant stories. And in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, so important for people to know that I wanted to put it out there. But I also wrote it because I knew we were entering an age of intensifying catastrophe, both in frequency and in intensity, as we entered the age of climate change. And it's happened faster, harder, worse than almost any of us anticipated when I published that book in 2009. What the record on how ordinary people behave in a sudden disaster, an earthquake, a hurricane, a flood, a fire, behave, what the evidence shows is that most of us are generous, altruistic, brave, creative, empathic, that all those silly Hollywood movies are designed partly to hold up some Kurt Douglas, may he rest in power, Charlton Heston figure who's better than the rest of us and who's saving some of us from others of us. I had to watch a bunch of disaster movies to write that book. And they promulgate what the mainstream media, at least through Hurricane Katrina and the earthquake in Haiti in 2010 did, which is that Hobbesian notion that ordinary people are savages, or at least men are, when a catastrophe happens, they see it as a catastrophe because institutional authority has ceased to exist, which it does when there's a total power blackout and the police and everybody are overwhelmed. So they assume men become wolves and go out raping and pillaging, and women and nicer men become sheep and panic and stampede and make really bad decisions, which is why you need heroes, the exceptional guy who's going to go in there and tell everyone what to do and carry struggling, screaming women off in their arms and shoot bad guys. It's great for movie plots because we have really stupid movie plots that are about valorizing individuals above the heroism of the group and can't really imagine the heroism of the group for the most part. But what actually happened in 1906 San Francisco, what happened in Hurricane Katrina, and I heard a lot of those stories firsthand, what happened in the Great Earthquake of 1985 in Mexico, what happens in all those things is that ordinary people who are always the first responders for the great majority take care of each other, they rescue each other, they improvise the conditions of survival. They build soup kitchens and shelters in the ruins. They, you know, claw through the rubble to get grandma out from under the building. But that's not even the most important thing that happens, that we do the right thing, that we're really good. What's really amazing and kind of shocking is how often when people are living in a devastating and utterly disrupted situation in which they may have lost everything, in which death is all around, when they tell me the story, when they write the story, there's often this intense joy that comes from feeling something so important to us and so missing from our everyday life that it shines out in those moments. And what happens is first they feel agency, and second they feel fellowship. They feel connected to the people around them, 
They feel that they have something important to do in an age where most of us do work that may feel meaningless and feel we have no voice. And that desire, I think, for a connection that goes beyond private and personal life, that desire to be part of a community that I think has been so privatized out of us shows up in a big way. We haven't designed our societies around feeding and encouraging that desire, which I think also is fundamental to democracy. We haven't celebrated it. We haven't named it. We haven't tried to nurture its conditions. And so it often feels like it's dormant or repressed as well as unnamed, but it breaks out in these moments. The civil wars and a catastrophe and scarcity and drought are often because an elite is hoarding resources and pitting one group against another. Civil wars usually happen because a minority has strategically propagandized, and now we have things like Facebook with the massacre of the Rohingya in Burma to help them do it. But um, it's not usually that this group of people really wants to kill that group of people, that the Hutu and the Tutsis always truly felt that way. It's that somebody weaponized, somebody with whose elite weaponized that. And what we also know is that who panics in catastrophes, it's elites, because they themselves are the Hobbesian people, and they themselves believe when they're not in control, things are chaotic, and that they, by any means necessary, need to get back into control. And often that means defending property rights, not defending human life. And that's why yeah, they were sh shooting people on site in the 06 earthquake in San Francisco as looters, including people who were trying to rescue people from the rubble. Why, you know, they were sending troops instead of first aid to Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. You know, and so it's often the elites are kind of the monsters. And so, you know, the enemies of democracy are the enemies of democracy in these situations as they always are. I feel understanding what happens in these circumstances and both what often goes wrong as well as what can go right really matters. As we enter this age of intensified climate catastrophe, building the capacity to have grassroots self-organizing, to have less hierarchical structures, to make sure that the systems serve the benefit of the many and not the few, to allow people to be egalitarian, democratic, self-regulating is part of how you defuse the civil war. It doesn't solve climate change, which we need to address by leaving the age of fossil fuel behind and changing our energy system and the way we live. It doesn't, you know, stop absolute resource scarcity, but most of our resource catastrophes throughout history have been problems of distribution, not of absolute scarcity, as you can see with homelessness in America, for example. So I think that all that knowledge and all those values are equipment that help us deal with the catastrophic era we're suddenly living in. And that's what I wrote A Paradise Built in Hell to deal with. So one thing that that gets at and that you've written about in the past is that we very much live inside ideas and idea structures that we don't understand to be ideas. We just understand them to be the way things are. And you have this great um, line where you write that remembering that people made these ideas as surely as people made the buildings we live in and the roads we travel on helps us remember that first change is possible. And second, it is our good luck to live in the wake of this change 
rather than asserting our superiority to those who came before the new structures. And so that idea that the ideas of the past look archaic to us now and that there are ideas we are living inside that will be questioned and will look, and will look archaic to the future. What are some of the ideas that we live inside that you think are going to be questioned, are going to fall, and are going to look intolerable to the future? That the incredible toxicity that is fossil fuel at every stage from extracting it to burning it to what it does to the climate is a really good idea. That taking all the carbon buried 300 million years ago beneath the earth and flinging it back into the sky is a really cool thing to do. And so that's one of them that, you know, that energy comes from burning stuff, which has actually been true throughout human history, but we just wanted so much more of it with industrial revolution and we became this runaway, out-of-control species, flinging the buried carbon back into the sky. But I think that some of them we can't see because we haven't challenged them enough. I feel like we're in the middle of a our women, our our women people evolution. And clearly I think a lot of the violence is about is committed by people, by men who do, don't quite accept that. If you have the right to kill somebody, to rape them, to torture them, you don't believe that they're possessed of human rights clearly. And the entitlement part is something we don't get at that often. You know, but that's also so much, that's structural. It's not just that there are a minority of bad, bad men who do these things. It's structural. Something that comes to mind is Terry Gross was interviewing Gloria Steinem and asked some Terry Gross question about why Gloria Steinem got married for the first time in her 60s. And Gloria Steinem had this great answer. She said, first I had to reinvent the institution of marriage. And I love that because when Gloria Steinem was a young woman and really this project wasn't finished until the 1990s, domestic violence, which a phrase that did not yet exist, was not taken seriously unless you ended up gravely injured or dead. It was tacitly accepted that husbands and all sexual partners had the right to chastise women. We understood rape only as a violent attack by a stranger in which a pure and perfect woman did everything right in protesting and was overcome through the threat of violence. Not that she was unconscious, she was terrorized in other ways, etc. Husbands could not rape their wives. And the property laws, you know, essentially did not allow women to make medical and financial decisions for themselves autonomous of their husbands. Women were literally property in this country until very recently. And that's actually shocking. And I feel like people watch The Handmaid's Tale and think, oh, that's very bad. And it's like, that's an interesting future dystopia. But can we just go look at 1965 or so where we all, where this country was and where these laws were? But one of the things I feel that comes out of the women's movement and the civil rights movement is that changing laws is not enough. You have to change the imagination. Giving people equal rights under the law does not give them equal rights in the collective imagination. And that's a second round we're working on now. I also know how invisible disabled people were and how they were literally rendered invisible by being institutionalized, kept out of places, and also living in places where there were no wheelchair ramps, no elevators, no curb cuts, et cetera, and how much the disability rights movement has both made people visible and made, you know, given them more, if not equal, access to participation. We're now looking at neurodiversity 
and other kinds of ways people are different and what it looks like to be more inclusive of them. But I think the really important thing is, and this is my hope in the dark, is that the future is dark. We do not know what's going to happen. We just know that everything's going to look different and that things we cannot possibly imagine are going to happen. And this is why I always say hope and optimism are so different. Optimism is confidence that we know what's going to happen and it's going to be lovely. And that's just the flip side of pessimism, which is we know what's going to happen and it's going to suck and there's nothing we can do about it. Both of them are so full of certainty, they require no engagement. Hope for me is about the recognition that the future is something we make and it's deeply uncertain. And so we have to go out there and try on behalf of what deserves protecting of the values we want to see realized in the world, of what matters, of what what it takes to have a climate that's not going to boil us to death and, you know, destroy so many living things. So that's the work we're here to do. Let me ask you one more question before we move on to book recommendations, which is you've done some really great writing on the thinness of basing life around happiness, as that being the the animating ideal. And you wrote about a woman you knew who's had a long and meaningful life, that she's lived according to her principles. She's loved and respected by her descendants. But you said you wouldn't call her happy. Her compassion for the vulnerable and concern for the future have given her a despondent worldview. What she has had instead of happiness requires better language to describe. There are entirely different criteria for a good life that might matter more to a person. What are the criteria around which you sort of define a good life? I think meaningful is everything. And when depression starts to sneak up on me, it always feels like a crisis of meaninglessness, which I also get sometimes from sprawly landscapes and bad entertainment and et cetera. I think we want meaning. I think we want human connection. Because we're such a consumer culture, we always talk in love about love as though it's a commodity we want to acquire. But I think we need people, places, and things to love as well as to be loved by. And I think places and things can love you in some ways, particularly places. But we want connection. We want membership. We want agency. I've been hearing this ridiculous thing about, well, feminism didn't make women happier. I think you talked about that with Kate Mann. And it's like, hey, having human rights may not make you happy in that it puts a little skip in your step, but it's nice to not be voiceless. And um, it's nice to have enough power and enough rights to be feel like you're a full participant somewhere all of the time. So I think we want a lot of complex things that make our lives meaningful and connected and give us membership. And we don't talk about that enough. We talk about happiness just like we talk about love, like we talk about so many things as a kind of commodity you should go out and get, and then when you have it, everything will be great. I think happiness... I don't know if it's even interesting. I think joy matters, and joy we recognize as evanescent. It flickers up, and it might come out of deep spiritual experience. It might come out of hanging out with little kids. It might come out of a trick of light. One thing I think we don't recognize enough, and this goes back to meaning, for me there's a lot of joy in reading and writing and thinking and suddenly having seeing a pattern, a connection, a meaning— Having something make sense in a new way, for me, is really exhilarating. And so all those things matter. I think also 
confidence in the future is really important to our well-being. We also talk about happiness, like if you have a nice bank account and you have nice things and you live in a nice house and a very attractive person loves you and wants to have sex with you, that's all you need. But I think we have a lot of grief and fear right now because we do not live on a safe planet, and that's the house we all live in. Like, it doesn't matter how pretty your apartment is if the sea's rising and the weather's getting weird and millions of refugees are going to show up on the border. We are not separate from each other. And I think there's a way that realizing that can be really lyrical and spiritual and poetic. In a way, it also burdens us with the suffering of others, with responsibility for others, and the recognition that what happens happens to all of us. And that's actually one of the ways that climate change demands that we recognize the interconnectedness of all things. So I think that all those things matter to a sense of well-being, but that happiness seems so superficial to me sometimes. It's like, are you perky? Are you chipper? Are you cheerful? And it's like, I think also we know from listening to the blues and singing sad songs and stuff that the deepest emotions are not necessarily perky. They can be melancholic or sad, but but meaningful. And I once divided emotions up between deep and shallow rather than happy and sad. And um, I like the deep stuff. I like that a lot. Um, and I've loved having this conversation with you. So let me ask the question we always used to end, which is, what are three books you've read that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? You know, I have a house full of teetering pillars of books, and sometimes I wish a librarian would come over and help me. And I've been influenced by so many books going back to buying Borges' book Labyrinths when I was 15 and reading James Baldwin and Susan Sontag and George Orwell and Virginia Woolf when I was young. But three books I'm so excited about that came out in the last couple of years that also make me feel really hopeful about the country because I feel like American literature is the country I want to live in, even if actual America isn't so much yet. Because we're seeing all these brilliant young queer writers and writers of color not just write fantastic books, which has always been happening, but writing fantastic bestsellers. And that just makes me feel like if that's what's being published and that's what people want to read and that's who readers are and who they're listening to, that's pretty thrilling. And so three of those books are Ocean Vong's On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous, Carmen Maria Machado's In the Dream House, and Tommy Orange's There, There. They're all exquisitely beautiful masterpieces of prose style, but they're also really powerful visions of what the world looks like from a perspective we might not have heard from so much, and really new ideas about what writing can do and how the world can be described. And they're not just original because two of the writers are queer and all of them are people of color, and one of them's a woman, but also just they're really fresh and how do we connect to each other? How do we think of each other? Carmen's book is actually about what are all the templates for telling a story that's never been told of domestic violence in a same-sex relationship. I'm going to try on all of them and explode beyond them. And I think we're in a literary golden age, and these are three of the books that make it golden and make me grateful that they're peers in that they're writing at the same time I am, even though they're all quite a bit younger. Rebecca Solnit, thank you very much. My pleasure. 
Thank you to Rebecca Solnit for being here. Thank you, of course, to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. If you have feedback, if you have guest suggestions, whatever it might be, The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media Podcast Network production.